I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. This episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsor, Katsu Global. Katsu has made a huge difference in my life, both in strength and recovery. So I am very thankful for their support of this podcast. And I'll tell you a little bit more about Katsu later on in this episode. It's no secret that I personally love the mental side of training and competing. It's kind of my jam. I also know that the mental game is often the toughest hurdle athletes must harness in order to reach their biggest goals. So that's one reason that I wanted to bring on today's fabulous guest, Rebecca Smith. Rebecca is the founder and CEO of Complete Performance Coaching and Perform Happy, and she's been helping high achievers thrive under pressure for over 20 years. Rebecca is a former gymnast herself and coach, and she's also a recovering perfectionist. She struggled with mental blocks for years before they eventually destroyed her gymnastics career. Rebecca's deep passion lies in using an evidence-based approach that allows fearful young athletes to learn to trust themselves again. Her athletes learn to have a voice and stand up against the toxic culture of youth sports that has existed for decades. In today's episode, we dig into the tough stuff that you need to know in order to build your confidence. We talk all about mental blocks and how to work through them, fear, falling apart in a competition, injuries, and coaches. In fact, there's so much awesomeness packed into this episode, you might need to listen to it a few times to make sure you're taking it all in. And because mental training is my passion and what I became so good at throughout my career, I started personally coaching athletes on their mindset and performance. From juniors to pros, diving to shooting, athletes trusted me with their biggest struggles and left our calls smiling with renewed hope and more confidence. Some of the best things that came out of these coaching sessions were that athletes realized they're not the only ones dealing with their struggles, and they began to understand that there are, in fact, ways to move past these roadblocks. In fact, some of the most common stumbling blocks my athletes have been dealing with are some of the very same things we discussed today in this episode. Sometimes it's just helpful to have someone who's been in your shoes to help guide you out of the woods. Well, I've definitely been there. So if one-on-one coaching with me is something that you want to learn more about, just go to laurawilkinson.com slash coaching. That's laurawilkinson.com slash coaching, or you can just click the link in the show notes. Now make sure you smash that subscribe button and give us a five-star review if you're enjoying the Pursuit of Gold podcast. And please tell your friends about this podcast so that we can continue to improve and grow to that next level, bringing you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. Rebecca Smith, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I am so excited that you're here. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, I'm really excited to talk to you today, just like I was telling you before we hit record, um, because you focus on some of my favorite subjects, mental skills, high performance, and confidence. So Tell us a little bit first about your background. I know you were a gymnast growing up, but you've kind of described yourself as the team head case. And so tell us about your time in gymnastics. Yes. So I had basically the way I viewed myself when I was a gymnast was that I was too tall, I was too old, and I was too scared. But I loved gymnastics. I loved it so much. I started a little bit late, so hence the tall and old. And I just loved it. I wanted to impress my coaches. I wanted to be perfect. I am a recovering perfectionist, I call myself. (laughs) And I just loved it. It's all I would do. I was just flipping on my parents' bed. So it was like, okay, girl, go do this somewhere where it's safe. (laughs) And 
I was always really nervous. So my first gymnastics meet, I was shaking so badly on the beam that I ended up getting like a five out of 10 because they were counting wobbles for every single nerve tremor. I remember like the feeling, getting ready to get up on that beam, like get me out of here. Mm. What have I done? But yet I (laughs) I kept doing it right because (laughs) there were those moments where I did great and I you know, had, I guess, some talent a little bit. I didn't really think I did, but I was like, wow, maybe I am kind of good at this. (laughs) And, but then when the skills got bigger, um, my brain wasn't having it. I would have these moments where I had already one beam with this backward skill and now I can't do it at all, Mm. at all. Can't do it. Like I put my arms up, I get ready. I try to go back and it's like, I'm hitting a brick wall and I couldn't get myself to move. And it was, sometimes it felt like fear, but sometimes it just felt like my body was not cooperating. And that got really frustrating. My coaches got really frustrated. Long story short, I quit because I was like, well, I'm never getting over this. I don't think it's possible. I think there's something wrong with me. And I was 14. Mm. And it just, it was so sad to be like, well, I want to have a social life. Oh, I want to. And then what did I do? I immediately start coaching 40 hours a week. (laughs) Like I didn't, (laughs) I wasn't going to have a social life. I love gymnastics. That's all I wanted to do. Yeah. And then I found myself yelling at those kids who couldn't go backwards and was like, what is this? So that's been my my passion over the last you know several years has been to figure this thing out. What is happening in the brain? Why can't she go backwards? Um, why can't coaches figure it out? Mm-hmm. And then like, what is the actual solution? Yeah. So let's kind of start with that whole idea of mental blocks, because that is huge in gymnastics. It's huge in my sport of diving. So kind of explain for those listening um, what a mental block is, what it can look like. So it's it's really just that feeling of, I should be able to do this. I know that I physically can, but for some reason, it's not working. And it typically, there's sort of a domino effect. A lot of the time people think it just randomly, I lost my dive. I lost my skill. It's mm-hmm. gone. Right. It feels random, but it's it's this domino effect typically where you do the skill and it feels weird. And you're like, hmm, okay, uh, that doesn't feel right, mm-hmm. which makes you start to think. And it's typically a skill that you don't have to think on. It's automated. It's already built into your muscle memory. You just do it. And then all of a sudden you add thinking into this automated skill and it creates tension in the body. So you're like, Ooh, what's wrong? Okay. I need to make some adjustments because that didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And then you make those adjustments and then it feels worse and it feels bad and maybe even scary. Mm -hmm. So then you've had a couple of not so good attempts and now you're really overthinking and you're like, Oh gosh, what's wrong? Oh no. And especially if you've ever had this happen before, you're a lot quicker to go. It's a mental block. I lost my skill. Oh no, this is terrible. You get all freaked out, which ups the tension true. in your body. <laughs> okay. Yep. Um, so then you're like, Oh my gosh, my skill is gone. I'm tense. Uh, there's, you know, we go right into that, like kind of fixed mindset. Like it's all over. This is, mm-hmm. this is the end. And then you're like, no, 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 it's fine. You're sort of having this internal battle. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I don't need help. I don't need to change anything. I don't need to ask for anything. I'm just going to go do it. And then you try it and you can't even take off. Literally. And that's where it's yeah. (laughs) literally physically your brain has cut circuit to your body and put on the brakes and you can't do it. And you have no idea why. 
Now, and I, what I've seen, so I want to ask you, because I know you've talked to so many gymnasts, especially about this, but it's almost always on a skill, like you were saying, that you've done before that's almost become kind of automatic. It's usually not some brand new skill. Like there's a normal sense of fear there, but the blocks tend yeah. to happen on something you've done, right? Yes. And it's usually something you're very good at. I mean, I work with a lot of um, cheerleaders and tumblers who are the best tumbler on their team. Mm -hmm. And they're so powerful and they're so strong. And they're the ones who lose their tumbling. And their parents are like, she's the best tumbler anyone's ever seen. Mm -hmm. Like, why can't she just go do it? And it's because there's just such a combination of factors that lead to a mental block. One of them is like, the, it's the pressure of being amazing, mm. being perfect. The brain is like, I just can't handle the threat of disappointment that could come from you not living up to your potential. Mm. So we're just going to put on the brakes. It's all too much. Yeah. Isn't it amazing and how it's, our, it's, our, brains, our brains cope in this weird way, like almost without our consent, <laughs> you know? Yeah, they do because our brain only cares about keeping us safe. That's the only thing. It doesn't care about competitions. It doesn't care about scores or medals or places or deadlines or any of that stuff. It only cares about keep the body alive. And especially for an adolescent, the threat of, you know, disappointing their tribe mm -hmm. or being left out or left behind is really major because, you know, if you go back to like caveman adolescence, like your girl, you're about to get pushed out of the cave. <laughs> so you better figure out where you fit. And if you don't fit, you could die. Yeah. So that's sort of like where our brains come from. If you don't, you know, fall into line with who you're supposed to be, that's a big danger as far as your brain is concerned. So like talking about that pressure, I mean, it's really, it's related to the sport, but it's almost not the sport. You know what I mean? It's the pressure that you put on yourself mm. or that you're getting from others. Like there, and there's other stuff too. I, I feel like what I've heard from people too is that, well, or what we've learned, I guess, as we discover some of these things is that a lot of those mental blocks aren't actually because of the sport. It's coming from like situations, even maybe outside of the gym or outside of the pool, like things like that can add on. Is it all just stress related or how, like, what, what have you kind of seen on that? Yeah. So confidence, it's basically confidence is always sort of like short answer. That's the solution to fear. When fear is up, confidence is down. When confidence is up, fear is down. So confidence is this like crazy complex amoeba that you have to sort of manage. And there are so many things affecting your amoeba at any given moment. Like, did you get enough sleep? How was your breakfast? Did your mom say something weird to you? Is your teammate looking at you strange? Do you have a wedgie? Like all of these things that are just <laughs> like impacting your personal amoeba day by day. Then you add into that, you know, AP classes in school and you're not getting a good grade or, you know, the pressure of getting into college, being recruited, you know, whatever is up for you, all of those things are constantly in flux. So any of those things can impact your daily baseline of confidence. So that's something just to be aware of. It's like if you start your day at a like just a bummer baseline because life you know, because your parents are getting divorced, because like, you know, whatever's going on in your life, your baseline is lower. So if you go into practice being like, I need to be perfect, you're not setting yourself up for success. So I'm, you know, I'm talking, anyone who's like, whether you're like super stuck currently with a mental block or you're just having like kind of a slump, I always ask like, well, what can you do 
right now, rather than focusing on what you can't or should or would have been able to do. It's just, well, no, no, no. Today, point A is this. I can do this progression. I can do this part of the skill. I can do it with this accommodation. And now from here, I just get a little better. So is that kind of always how you start with like a mental block as you're starting by like, what can I do today? Yes, 100%. Because one of the biggest issues that causes mental blocks is what I call, you may have heard Carol Dweck talks about mindset, mm-hmm. a fixed mindset versus a, a growth mindset. A fixed mindset believes that you've been handed this, you know, you've been dealt this hand that says you're X amount talented, X amount intelligent. That's all you get. Good luck. And a lot of people who are highly talented actually fall into that category because they believe, well, my talent is what makes me great. So they get stuck in that trap of like, this is all I've got. And if I if I start to fail, it's because my talent is running out, you know, or something outside of my control. See, the, I, I want to, sorry, I don't mean to like bust out in the middle, but that just reminds, yeah. I was just talking to a Navy SEAL and we were talking about kind of that similar, we weren't you know, calling it fixed mindset and stuff. But I was talking mm-hmm. about how when I, I've seen these talented athletes come through that are so talented and they skyrocket at the beginning, but then they plateau because they never do anything extra because they just yeah. expect that talent to be all they have. Where then you see this person mm-hmm. who has like very minimal talent that works and fails and learns yes. and watches these others and flies past that person in the end that had the natural Absolutely. talent. So that's wild. I didn't even think of that as they have that fixed mindset because of their talent. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I'm always telling parents praise effort, Mm. effort, not talent because you you can't control talent. So how, you know, you're, it's like you're complimenting someone on, on something they can't even, you know, they're like, great. I got lucky basically. So those kids who are highly talented with that fixed mindset, have a rough day and think things are, you know, sort of doomed versus, you know, you get into growth mindset, which believes that, you can achieve anything. Like if I want to go be an Olympic diver, I could go do it right now. If I put enough effort and I had enough heart and I had enough training and I was creative enough, like I could do it. I could do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, all of our, all of our mommies told us that right when we were four, right. but that, but, but it's, you know, you see examples of it. Like um, a girl I used to coach just graduated from UCLA on, on the gymnastics team, you know, the best team in the world. (laughs) And she was the kid who was a hard worker with heart. She was not the most talented kid on her team. But so, so with that being said, if you want to move forward, you can't wait for your, you know, magic talent fairy to bless you with the ability to do your skill again. It just isn't going to work. You have to go, okay, either I'm going to focus on what I can't do, fixed mindset, or I can focus on what I can do, which maybe is barely anything, but it's something And when you can do that one little progression, that tiny approximation of that skill that, you know, the whole team is rolling their eyes and the coach is like, what are you doing? Like, you haven't done that since you were a kid. Why are you doing that drill? You're just like, it's okay. This is what I've got. This is what I'm doing. You do it. You're successful. And your brain goes, oh, that's right. That did feel safe. And then you can take a little teeny step forward from there. And your brain goes, oh, that's right. Oh, yes, yes, this is safe, isn't it? And you ease back in with a lot of repetitions because you need a lot of successes to override your brain's fear instinct. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. So we can allow the confidence to go up higher than the fear to the point where you you can have that click moment that we never know how long it's going to take, but that that click moment where you're like, oh, that's right. I can do this. Yeah. I heard you talking about this on one of your podcast episodes and I loved it. And you, you kind of described it as finding that sweet spot, like the skill in between where you're still nervous, but you can be successful yeah. at it. I like that. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I think there's a lot of, again, back to the fixed mindset, people believe, you know, and you'll have to excuse my lack of diving knowledge, but like, you know, that there's only like two heights that you can do it from, you know, or there's only like A, B and C. Those are the rungs on the ladder. You know, for the beam, it's like the low beam and the high beam, and that's it. And there are infinite progressions in between if you are creative. Right. You know, and well, that's and I, what people have to be able to look for and find. Exactly. And I and I've struggled with being creative sometimes. And I when I I broke my foot in two thousand, like three months before our Olympic trials, I like shattered it and mm-hmm. I couldn't get in the water. And so I was like, Well, what am I supposed to do? But my coach was really creative. And and he's helped me over the years become better at that. But like we did all kinds of things from like me going through the actions up on the 10 meter and he would coach me just doing them dry, just up there to being um, in the water, pushing off the side of the pool and just doing the dive underwater, which I'd never seen anybody mm-hmm. do anything like these things before. But yeah. it was something. And I tell you what, it gave me so much encouragement. Like it felt like, okay, well, at least I can do something. That That is very... I don't know. It kind of, it releases you from that. Like, this just sucks. I'm failing. It's miserable. Like it makes you think I'm still working toward that, even though it's not quite where I want to be yet. Yeah. Well, and there is functional equivalence. It's a fancy word for like the brain thinks it's really happening if you're Mm -hmm. imagining it. Right. So if you're, even if you're sitting and doing imagery, like Marilyn King was a decathlete from the eighties who famously was in this car wreck, broke her back six months before Olympic trials. And all she could do was imagine. And so she would imagine her entire practice. She'd imagine lacing up her shoes. She'd imagine stretching. She'd imagine the entire three-hour workout. Did this for six months. And what was happening, what science has shown, is that your brain and your muscles are firing and connecting in exactly the same way as if you were physically doing it. So all of those, like every single approximation, every single time you even just imagine it, it is increasing your confidence. And then also you're, instead of sitting there going, there's, I can't do anything. Well, what can you do? Right. There's always something. For sure. Now, do you, when you're dealing with mental blocks with people and and we've talked about how a lot of these things that are causing it can actually be outside of your physic, like what you're physically doing. It can be outside the gym, outside the pool. Like, do you ever kind of deal with those as well? Or are you just solely focusing on the skills and how to get those back? So great question. There are two parts to overcoming a mental block. There's the physical part, which is that, you know, we sort of build that ladder. What can you do? What's next? What's next? What's next? You know, and then we just make a lot of reps. There's a lot of communication with the coach, with yourself. We're factoring in that amoeba and the changing day by day. So that's like part one is the physical side. Mm -hmm. The other part is the relationship you have with yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's critical. Like this is how you speed up that ladder climb. It starts with awareness. So what are the things that create that tension and that overthinking that tend to like start the domino effect of the mental block? How do I relate to myself? What do I believe to be true? So it's all about just finding out what, like, how do I relate to myself? So that confidence ladder, 
you know, exercise of find your progression, move up, move down, move up, move down. That's an awareness exercise in and of itself. Because as you go through it, people are going to be like, why is it not linear? I should just be able to climb this ladder. Well, no, actually, because you're cutting yourself down in between and you're expecting too much and you're, you know, feeling like every rung is a failure because you're not perfect yet. Mm-hmm. So as you go through that physical process, you are learning about yourself and how you tick. And then once you have this foundation of awareness, you can really truly build an inner confidence that's rooted in your self-worth, that regardless of how you perform, you're worthy of love and respect. And regardless of how quickly you reach your goals, you know that you will because you believe, you know, that that self-belief and the self-love that it isn't conditional. I think a lot of athletes, especially who derive all of their their worth and value from their sport, because I've been told since a young age that, that they are so great because of their sport, they have to connect with the fact that, no, actually I'm great and wonderful. Even on my worst day, when I'm being snarky to my mother, not going for my skills and nobody likes me, I still deserve love and respect. Mm-hmm. And from there, everything else is a bonus. So there is this this huge kind of internal component that's all about like connecting with your own joy and your own choice because if you don't if you feel like you're doing it for anybody but you you're going to get burned out. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it goes. Mm-hmm. But if you can connect with like I choose to put myself through this rigorous training, I choose to overcome these crazy obstacles and from that place like I show up ready and willing to encounter what's what's on my plate for today. And when that relationship is solid, then you never find yourself getting totally blocked because you know, I just ask for help if I need it or I just work hard. It's not a big deal. Yeah. And I think that's really what you're pointing out is a lot of how we talk to ourselves and that kind mm-hmm. of inner voice that we have. And sometimes I think, well, actually, I think most of the time you have to go through some kind of trial, whether it's a mental block or some kind of you know injury or issue that you're having, you almost have to walk through those to learn how to talk to yourself because you start to realize how you're reacting. And it is a process you know, to actually learn how you tick and what it takes and how to get yourself back up there. So I guess kind of leads into my my next question is, is there a way to recognize the lead up to a mental block to maybe stop it before it becomes an absolute roadblock? I feel like that might be easier to do after you've been through it once. But is there a way to do that before one hits, like the, maybe the first one even? Yeah. I mean, I think the best thing you can do to avoid mental blocks, well, first of all, focus on effort rather than talent. Focus on the things you can control. But it's all about just having a different relationship with your confidence. And we can even wipe out the word. I mean, I use mental block all the time. I use the phrase because it's like what makes sense. But what if we eliminated that word altogether? Because it's not like there is an actual wall that has erected itself between you and your skill. It feels like it. Mm -hmm. But what's really happened is you've had a dip in confidence and that's it. So if your confidence starts to dip, We don't have to put this crazy label on it like, oh my gosh, you've lost your skill. It's gone. Goodbye. Instead, it's, oh, my confidence has dipped. What can I do to bring my confidence up? Hmm. And it's, it's pretty simple. And that's the kids that stop the cycle of mental blocks. You know, those kids who I, I work with who have had mental blocks repeatedly through their whole career, what they finally realize is, Confidence ebbs and flows. It comes and goes. It dips, it goes up. 
And so I know what to do when it dips. When it dips, I ask for help. When it dips, I go back to an easier progression before I need it. I always, I talk about front-loading confidence. You know, you just go in and do the easy skill first, even though you don't quote unquote need it Mm. because it sets you off on this confidence high point where you're like, oh, that was so easy. So you just ask yourself, what can I do in this moment to increase my confidence a little bit? And then you don't let the whole thing slide down into the hole and become, you know, a quote unquote mental block, which really is just a dip in confidence. Right. Right. I love it. Well, I hear from a lot of people, they're always telling me, I wish I was fearless like you, to which I laugh immediately in their face because I'm certainly not fearless. Like I get scared to death all the time. I mean, I jump off a three-story building, you know, I hurl my body in the air. Like it's not, it's not the not scary thing that I do. Um, so, I, but I've just, I've learned to face my fears and I've learned to deal with them before they, they come to this all-consuming point because I've dealt with that before. Um, so I've, I've learned how to handle that for myself. Um, and I know you've talked to many other super elite performers as well. And do they all get scared? Yeah. I mean, Sean Johnson, who was one of the 08 gymnastics superstars, was like, mm-hmm. I never don't get nervous. And if I didn't, I would be worried I didn't care. Mm-hmm. You know, And the great thing about nerves is that it's been proven that the physical sensation of nerves have no impact, no noticeable statistical impact on your performance. So the fact that your heart is beating, you're feeling tense, your hands are cold, you know, those physical things that happen when you get nervous are happening, that does not have to play any part in whether or not you perform well. The thing that is statistically connected to a poor performance is the worry about the nerves. Mm-hmm. So if you're having you know, somatic anxiety, that physical anxiety, it doesn't have to impact you, but it's the mental. It's when you get into that, oh no, the worry, mm-hmm. that's what starts to impact performance. Interesting. Well, and if you're worrying about it, then you're not even focusing on your performance. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of like exactly. back, backtracking to what we're focusing on for sure. Yep. Yep. But it's good to know yeah. that everybody does get nervous. Nerves are normal. Nerves are good. I think when you, when you know how to direct mm-hmm. them and, and kind of focus them and not be concerned with them, like you're saying. Yeah. Well, and there's that, I have a, a fun little technique that's quite useful for anybody out there who gets nervous. There was a study done on just that idea of like noticing that you're nervous. So there were these three groups and they they had each group go and do these three tasks, like singing karaoke in front of a judge, a math test and something else, you know, just like these stressful things. <laughs> uh, oh, and playing a video game, competing. So they did each three things. So the first group was supposed to go into each task thinking, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous. The second group was supposed to think about something neutral like chili cheese fries. And then the third, I don't remember what it was. And then the third is was supposed to think, I'm excited. I'm so excited to sing karaoke. I'm excited about this math test. And then they judged them on these tasks and they showed that the group that focused on being nervous did significantly worse. The neutral group did not significantly better or worse. And then that group that thought about being excited did significantly better. And the reason for that is excitement and nerves are both high arousal physical states. Mm -hmm. So your heart's beating, you're a little more fidgety, you've got a little more energy. It is a lot easier to go from nervous to excited than it is to go from nervous to calm. 
especially when you only have moments before you compete. So if you go into a competition and you're thinking, I'm so excited. Hey, how are you feeling about that meet? I am excited. You just, you let that be sort of like your mantra. Mm-hmm. Then your brain makes sense of all of those physical sensations and goes, oh, this is fine. <laughs> so it's a little bit like fake it till you make it, right? Like if you absolutely way, you tell yourself until you believe it, that's kind of and, how it works. But it's powerful. I mean, I have girls who are going out to their their competitions all the time. They're like, I'm excited. I'm like, if your mom asks you how you feel and what do you say? I'm excited, mom. <laughs> that's awesome. And then they're like, yeah, that's right. Maybe that's why my heart is beating a little bit harder right now because I'm excited about this. And it works. That's really cool. I love I love the little tips like that that really can make so much difference. It's awesome. I first started using Katsu after I discovered it could be used for recovery. After speaking with a Navy SEAL friend that had used Katsu to help him recover from traumatic injuries, I decided to give it a try for an ongoing tricep issue I had. Within the first week, I noticed the cramping I had in my tricep would completely stop after a Katsu session. It also helped me recover much faster after platform workouts. After seeing such great recovery, I started to add Katsu into some strength training and plyometric workouts as well. And the craziest side effect that I noticed was that I was hardly ever sore from a hard workout that I did while wearing the Katsu bands. I feel like Katsu has given me the ability to get stronger while recovering faster. Katsu is the pioneer and gold standard of the emerging blood flow restriction market. Navy SEALs, world champions, and gold medalists use Katsu daily for improved performance, quicker rehabilitation, and unprecedented recovery from hard workouts, intense competitions, and even jet lag. Katsu was invented in Japan and has been used at every Winter and Summer Olympics since 1988. Katsu Global offers a variety of easy-to-use products that can be used safely and effectively in the comfort of your home, office, or during travel. It can be used for any workout or between training and competitions for recovery. To learn more about Katsu and even get 10% off, go to laurawilkinson.com slash katsu. That's laurawilkinson.com slash katsu. K-A-A-T-S-U. Okay, another big thing that I talk to athletes a lot about is how they win the warm up and then fall apart in the competition. And I'm mm. guessing it might have something to do with what we're talking about. But, you know, some people will tell me, no, 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 I felt great in the warm up. I felt totally prepared, but then I was just a hot mess in the competition. What yes. do you say okay, so, to that? <laughs> so I look at so I look at that past performance as really great information. Mm. I go, ooh, good. There are some good clues here. Because a lot of mental training is just about finding patterns and clues because every individual is an individual. Everybody's so different. We all have different minds. So if I was to say, every athlete should go and visualize for 45 minutes and then say these three words and you'll be great. It's not going to work for most people. So if you take your, your terrible performance and you just look at it and go, okay, what did you do in warm up that worked? What were you focusing on? What were you feeling? What were you paying attention to? What were you aware of? Great. Those are our clues. And then we look at the not so good performance and go, okay, what were you, what was your environment internally, externally? What were you paying attention to? And we gather those clues and do a little detective work and go, okay, well, when I was, when I was doing the warm up, I was focused here. When I was competing, I was focused here. Mm. Amazing. Like such great information. So then we look at it and go, okay, this strategy 
of focusing on the outcome, focusing on what you need to do as far as the, you know, qualifying. It's almost always outcomes. When you're focusing on an outcome, you are in the future. And if you're in the future, you cannot find your flow because flow happens only in the present moment. Mm -hmm. So almost always they have moved themselves from the present moment, feeling the body, feeling the sensations, and just executing into some external expectation of something that's supposed to happen in the future that has distracted them from their flow. Yes, that's so perfect. So what kind of do you try to get your athletes to meditate and do things like practice being in the moment, like in a regular basis before they get to the competition to help them kind of do that in the competition? So yes, I mean, I definitely encourage meditation and imagery. I also come from a place of, I have the busy monkey mind real bad. Um, sitting still for me is, is still to this day a challenge. So, you know, I encourage them to do what they can to, to find their presence. For some athletes, it can be like more of a moving meditation. So I love to have people practice the mindful warm up. So there, you know, maybe if you have the first five minutes, you're running laps or the first five minutes, you're swimming laps or you're whatever it is that you're doing. That's sort of just getting the major muscle groups moving for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. Do that as present as possible. And one great way to do that is just to find one thing because that's, you know, meditation is sort of just keeping your mind on one thing. And then when it wanders, you bring it back and wanders, you bring it back and you're training your mind to keep coming back and coming back to that one thing. And so for, for whatever your sport is, what's that thing you do for five minutes, every single workout that you can just go, I'm just going to, you know, for swimmers, I'm just going to listen to the bubbles leaving my nose. Or if you're jogging, it's, you're just going to the one, two, three, four rhythm of your feet. And you're just going to try to stay there for those few minutes and your mind will wander 72 times. <laughs> and then you just go, oh, come on back without judgment and you just go back to that one, two, three, four. And that, you know, because if you tell an athlete, let's add another thing to your plate, let's add a task to your day, right. it can be daunting versus going, well, what are you already doing? And how can you bring more mindfulness to that? And then see if you can stretch it. You know, can your mindful warm up then be six minutes eventually? And maybe you notice that your entire first workout event has been more mindful. And you just, from there, you're kind of adding that, that presence of mind into as much of your practice as possible so that then when you compete, it's sort of second nature. Right. And you're starting to recognize, not just in the warm-up, but when you're doing different skills or different stations, you're starting to recognize when that mind is wandering and how to bring it back. That's really... Exactly. Really. Yes. Good. I love it. Well, let's let's talk injuries a little bit because in sports, I mean, that's really kind of just part of the journey, unfortunately. And yeah. you can let that completely destroy your confidence or you can actually use the time that you're injured to make strides forward. So how do you like to talk athletes through dealing with injuries? Yes. Yeah, so injuries, just like mental blocks are part of the deal, you know, for a lot of athletes, it's just, it's a setback. Mm -hmm. So the, the worst thing you can do is compare yourself to where you should be or could be or where your friend is or you know where you would like to be because that all that does is create self-pity and that doesn't energize us that doesn't get us moving so we again we go back to that point a what can you do and how do you get a little better from here based on what you can control and i mean it's a, like the most simple exercise of just writing down a list of what can you control in this situation and then a list of what can you not control speed of healing, 
progress forward, where you could have been, the past, the future. You, have, you put all these things on that list of things you can't control. And I typically will ask athletes, okay, which list is stressing you out the most? Which one has the most stressful things? And they're like, the things I can't control. I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> That's great news. Because then we tear that paper in half, we crumble up the things you can't control, and we let them go. And we go, okay, there's nothing we can do about it. So we're going to focus your whole focus energy onto that list of things you can control, which is you know, eating well, PT, your attitude, doing things that keep you motivated. And I I really love to give, well, not give people, but to suggest creative pursuits. Mm -hmm. So if you are out with an injury and you're feeling like my life is over, what do I do with myself? That's the time when you go, well, what do I like to do? What would I do if I had some extra time? And that's where um, I've worked, I've talked to a few injury experts who, you know, like dove into photography or painting or knitting or, you know, something that they always loved, but just never really had the time to do. And it gave them, you know, this creative outlet to be able to find a little gratitude in their downtime. Mm. But, but just that, that focus on what you can control and starting where you are and moving forward from there rather than playing that comparison game. That's critical. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think it's important too when you're injured, especially if you're trying to come back for like a big event or something to look at, like you said, those things you can control, but be all in. Don't just be like, mm -hmm. okay, well, here's a list. I'm going to kind of just do it because mm -hmm. it's all I can do. Like to change yeah. your attitude and be like, well, if all I can do is pretend to dive off the 10 meter, <laughs> then I'm going to do that with everything that I have, you know, yes. and, and be all into that because the more that you, you know, embrace that and put your whole self into it, the more you get out of it and the more it, it mm -hmm. becomes a very significant thing that you're doing. And it, I don't know, it just helps you it helps you feel like for one that you're not totally out that there is something productive you can do but i mm. kind of feel like that actually helps you come back faster like when yeah. once you get back in your brain has already been there and it's not like you've been necessarily far away for a long time do you know what i mean like at least for diving yeah. if you're out of the water for like a month sometimes you just you feel like a baby calf or something learning how to walk again <laughs> you know like you don't know what you're doing but those times that i've been forced on the sidelines. And I've had to like stay around doing the mental training, going through like the actions of my dives and stuff. I've been able to get my dives back off within days once I'm yes. back in the water. And so I think that's like, that's huge too. Yeah. Well, and I noticed that with the COVID shutdown. So when everybody couldn't practice for three months, I had this group of kids and I was like, well, we're going to keep training our minds. We're going to train them hard. And we're going to, whenever the world opens back up, we're going to be ready and we're going to hit the ground running. And those kids, they worked on imagery. They worked on confidence. They worked on that relationship with themselves. They built this incredibly tough mind so that when, you know, when things opened up, everybody else on their team was these baby calves learning to swim again. And they were like, get me the springs. Like, let me go. Let me, I'm ready for this. Yeah. So I thought that was just so cool. Cause a lot of people are like, oh, I'm injured. So I can't do mental training right now. Cause they don't have anything to apply it to. And I'm like, oh my gosh, is that inaccurate? <laughs> because that's like what you should be doing when you're, you know, you all of a sudden have this ability to focus on something else and it keeps your, your muscles and your brain working together and talking so that you're ready to rock when it's, when you're cleared. Definitely. What have you seen just a little sidetrack with, with COVID? Cause that has affected people, not just from not having facilities, but also, you know, we've just seen everybody's mental health just, it's just been on this like downfall, downward spiral, I guess, you know, especially younger athletes and, and people too. So what, what kind of have you seen from that and what kind of advice or encouragement can you give to our listeners? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the biggest one is these kids, they work so hard and then they all of a sudden get their competitions taken from them. So it's like, I'm training and training and training for this competition. And then the competition goes away. Okay. And then I'm training and training again. And then I get COVID and I can't go or my coach gets COVID or the whatever, somebody gets COVID and something's canceled. And so they're, they're training and training and training. And they're like, what am I doing this for if I may not even get my competition? And I mean, yes. So, so competition is, I think many, many people will be like, well, that's why I do it. That's why I train is so that I can compete. But ask yourself when you were four and five and six and you were doing your sport just because it was like really fun or, you know, like you're just swimming or you're just tumbling on your parents' bed. That has nothing to do with getting a certain score. And I, I'll have people kind of like try to find their why, like what's your motivation? And the best way to find it is to go back and, you know, imagine a time when you, that time when you fell in love with your sport, that like that day or that week or that month where you were like, this is my thing. I want to do this every day. This is all I want to do with myself. Like forget eating and sleeping. Like this is all I want to do. And you go, okay, well, what was it? So Laura, I'd be curious. Like, do you have a, do you have a moment like that where you're like, this is my thing? Well, I mean, I grew up as a gymnast too, actually. And mm. that was my first love. And I, yeah, I mean, I remember watching the Olympics and, and wanting to be Mary Lou Retton. I'm going to date myself a little bit. You know, I saw her perfect <laughs> vault. And I was like, I want that to be me, but I just loved it. And my friend and I would play, like she had equipment in her house and we would just play and pretend we were those people. And mm-hmm. I mean, we would be at the gym, you know, every day for hours and hours. And then we go back to her house and do more gymnastics, but like pretending in our heads. And I, yeah, it was just fun. And that's one yeah. thing I loved about diving too, is I just loved the feel of it. And to me, as much as I love to compete, I am a competitor and I love being in that environment being the only person in a workout where I hit a dive really big and my coach is the only person that sees it, there's still something so Mm. gratifying about just having done it. Like it's, it's the hunt, you know, it's the doing, it's going after it. And I, I love that. I think it's just super cool. Yeah. So those moments, those moments have nothing to do with competition. Mm -hmm. They have nothing to do with a score or a cut or a place or any of that. So going back to that and going, oh, I actually really enjoy the mastery that allows me to do an incredible dive mm-hmm. and have somebody else acknowledge like, wow, that was incredible. That's the thing that you can find if you're struggling you know, with this whole idea of competition. Can I compete? What's the point? What is the point? Mm-hmm. Well, ask yourself, like, what is the point? The point is that I work hard overcome obstacles and get better at something really, really hard. And that feels incredible. And that's what you root yourself in. And for everybody, it's going to be slightly different. Mm -hmm. But you know, that like for me, it was doing my aerial, the cartwheel with no hands on the grass at school and all the kids being like, wow, that's incredible. That's amazing. (laughs) Like I'm flying. And that's, I always wanted to fly. I was all these dreams of flying, like that sensation of flying, Mm didn't matter if I did my stupid back handspring on the beam. I could go run down the tumble track and jump and fling and twist and land in the pit. And like, that is the thing I loved. So that was available to me too. And 
And if you, if you're struggling with that motivation or figuring out what the point is, just, yeah, go back to that time when you were connected to the love more than the need for certain outcomes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Well, I want to talk about what does an athlete do when they're having issues, whether it's injuries or mental blocks or what, whatever in their sport, but their coach is not being supportive or doesn't listen or, you know, doesn't really like what they're bringing to the table. Oh boy. Yes, this. <laughs> this is um, very common. And I've actually found that most people who struggle with mental blocks typically have a not so warm and nurturing coaching environment and or a parent who cares a lot and is putting pressure on their kid without necessarily realizing it. They think they're helping. So one one or, or both of those are very, very common in people who struggle with fear. So I interviewed Jonathan Horton. He's a multi-Olympian in the men's gymnastics mm-hmm. space. And he even unprompted, he was like, can I just say something, Rebecca? I was like, yes, Jonathan, you can say anything you want to say. And he's like, you know, if a coach isn't listening, like if you feel like you don't have a voice in your sport, get a better coach. And he's like, and I know I'm going to ruffle some feathers with that, but like get a better coach, go somewhere where you can be heard, go somewhere where you can collaborate or just get out because that's not going to get you to your dreams. Mm. Boom. <laughs> and I was like, amen, brother. I so so that's like my my short snarky answer is like if they don't listen to you, get a better coach. But not everybody can do that. You know, you might live in out in the middle of nowhere and like this is the coach, you know, or you can't drive two hours to get to a different training facility. So this is what you've got. So you have to acknowledge, I think, athletes, that your voice matters. And if you're not being heard, speak anyway. And I've seen a lot of times where the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So the, you know, the gymnast will go, coach, can I have a spot? Coach goes, you don't need a spot. They're like, okay, can I try it over here on this bar set? No. Okay. Can I try it over here? What if I put a mat under the bar? Can I put a mat over the bar? Could maybe you stand over on this side? I'm like, just keep asking until they finally are like, oh my gosh, stop talking. I don't care. And I'm like, woo, that's a win. That's a win. We'll take it because then you can go set your bars up and your mats up and and you can go do something that's going to move you forward. And if any coach is going to punish you for being creative, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. You want to always approach them with respect and collaboration. But I'm like, keep asking because here's what typically happens. There's a lot of coaches who are like, no, 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 that's not how it's done. And then finally they get frustrated or they just start ignoring the kid, which is awful, but it's at least it's better than them saying no. And then the kid just like does the thing that they need to do. They do their progressions. They start getting numbers in of something successful and then they start to make progress. And then the coach is like, fine, get the mat, whatever. I don't care. Um, And then they keep making progress and then they get their skill and the coach is like, I knew we would do this together. (laughs) They always take credit. But, you know, you you just want to continue the conversation. And for parents, you know, for parents of younger athletes, if if they're out there, have just a constant line of communication where you're asking them respectfully or adults talking to their coach, you know, can say, coach, I'd love to know your theory. Like, what's your plan? How is this working? What are you attempting to do to help my child through this situation or to help me through this situation? I would like to understand. And then they'll explain and, you know, and then the parent will say, Oh, okay. That makes sense. What I'm noticing is that my child's coming home in tears. So I'm not sure if that's really working. 
So what can we do? What can we try next? So you're giving them an opportunity to feel heard. This is critical. Like you, the coach has got to feel like they have a chance. Like you're not just coming in with fingers pointing and guns blazing, right. like you're a failing coach. Right. Instead, you're going, help me understand where you're coming from. I'd love to know. And then you can share your perspective and then you can collaborate. And if a coach is not willing to be helpful, then you talk to their boss and you have that same conversation. You know, like, what's your plan with this coach? What are you trying to accomplish here? Here's what we're noticing. Here's what we'd like to see. Um, and if that's not working, then we go to the higher up authorities, you know, like safe sport. And we talk about like, this isn't working. This isn't working and it needs to be different. And if it doesn't change, then you got to get out of there. That's my perspective. Right. And and always, like you said, always be respectful because I know coaches get a lot of crap from people too. So yes, uh, yeah, they so do. Always start respectfully. But what do you say to the athletes? Because there are some athletes that are much quieter and have a hard mm. time communicating at all with their coach. They just do what they're told and they have a hard time speaking up for themselves, but probably don't want their parent necessarily is always speaking up for them. Mm -hmm. um, how would you encourage those athletes? Yes, that is all about baby steps. And for many of the kids that we work with, that is the hardest part of the journey to rebuilding confidence is finding their voice. Because you have to be able, I've you know talked to Kyla Ross and Samantha Peshek, a couple other Olympic gymnasts who struggled with mental blocks in their lower levels. And both of them say, like, how'd you get through it? Well, I I communicated with my coach constantly. I walked in and I was like, oop, having a day where it, things aren't feeling safe. And Samantha Peshek would say, coach, I don't feel safe doing it on the high beam today. Can I do four times the assignment on the low beam? And the coach would say, yes. So it's a two-part thing where she's got an idea and he says, yes. And then she ends up doing four times the assignment like for years and years and becomes the most consistent beam worker on the planet because <laughs> she's put in so much work. But that collaboration is critical. So if you don't know how to speak to your coach, you got to start with, well, what can you do? Can you walk in and say, morning, coach? Or, hi, and maybe that's your thing that you did that day that you checked the box and go, I communicated. Or, nice shoes, or that's a cute sweatshirt, that you just go in and you're like, I'm going to compliment the coach on something today. Or, I'm going to compliment a teammate. Or, I'm going to ask a question about an assignment. And you just start with like, today's goal is, and then you go and you do it and you go, oh, okay, the coach didn't bite my head off. Good to know. And then you just sort of ease it and you go, all right, next, tomorrow's goal is I'm going to speak twice to my coach. And this isn't about, you know, asking for something hard. This is starting to just pave the way of having a relationship where your coach hears your voice. And that makes you, I think a lot of the time feel like, oh, my coach isn't actually as scary as I thought they were. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I think and they maybe like can talk to me nicely. Right. And I, it's so funny because communication is so crucial to any relationship. And especially mm -hmm. when you are trusting someone with your body and all these crazy things that you're doing, you know, you've got to be able to communicate. So if you are one of those athletes that doesn't have that voice yet, please start with these baby steps Rebecca is talking mm -hmm. about. Just start. It may take you a while, but just start now and you will get there and you will get to this great point and realize that your coach maybe not isn't so scary. <laughs> totally. For sure. Well, I know you also have some coaching for parents too, don't you? I would yes. love to hear about that because I know you are also a mom and I'm a mom and I, I want to hear mm -hmm. about the parent side as well. Yes. So I, like I mentioned, uh, most of the kids that we help through mental blocks have got, you know, something going a little sideways in either the coach or the parent department. 
And I actually recently realized that we have to train the parents first in many of these situations. And the kids are like, oh, mom, I don't want to do mental training. I'm fine. I'm not, I don't need that. But the parents are like, oh my gosh, she would be so much better and so much happier if she could just break through this fear. And so we started really like working on those parents because I'm like, well, if your kid won't do the mental training, let's let's work on you and just see what happens. And so these parents would come in and they're like, I'm trying to motivate my kid. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give her a bribe or I'm gonna threaten her or I'm gonna like they're just they're on this like motivation warpath. Like, oh, I'm gonna get my kid motivated to see that she's amazing and that she should believe in herself. And it's just totally backfiring because now the kid's like, oh my gosh, if I don't get a medal, I don't get the kitten. And then they're melting down under the pressure. Or they're like, well, if I don't do this vault, I have to quit. Or I can't go to summer camp. Or it's like just I, I adding. Had a kid, I had a diver on my team tell me that if she beat me at one meet, her parents were going to buy her a car. And she did. And she got a car. I'm like, that's insane. In, that's I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that is crazy. And you know what? It works for like 10% of those hyper-competitive kids. And for most, it's but just like going to create so much time, pressure. <laughs> yeah. And there's so many things outside of your control. So actually with that girl, that, that particular girl was like, so she had this, like, you're going to get a kitten if you get on the podium at any of these meets. So she kept getting fourth place, fifth place, fourth place, fifth place. And it was because of these stupid mistakes that she was making because she was so stressed out because she wanted that cat so bad that I finally was like, can we just tell your mom that we're not going to do the cat thing anymore? And she's like, yeah, I think that's a good idea. It's like, you guys just get a cat if you want a cat and just like, don't connect it to the sport. <laughs> the next meet, she wins first place. Oh my goodness. It's like, because she finally could relax yeah. enough. So we teach the parents, you know, like motivating is not the thing. It's actually not a motivation issue at all. It's a fear thing. And we talk about how to help the kids without creating more problems and more pressure and more stress. And pretty much like the short, short version is food, rides, hugs, tuition. Thank you. <laughs> the end. I, I have to tell you the number one thing parents will ask me is how do I motivate my kid? I'm like, you don't. It's not your yep. job to motivate. Your kid has to do that on their own. Like if they don't want to do it, yeah. they're not going to do it. <laughs> yes. And of course there are, there are things you can do. Like you can create a very safe, trusting environment with yes. your athlete where they can come to you and be a neutral sounding board without an agenda. Mm-hmm. And you can listen. I mean, that is what they need. They need you to go like, oh, you feel like you hate it and you want to quit today. I totally know that feeling. Instead of like, well, then why are we spending so much money if you're going to be so miserable? (laughs) It's like, you just listen. They don't really want to quit. They don't really hate it. They just need to feel that way right now. And they need you to listen without feeling like you're going to make them quit because they said they want to quit. So, you know, you just listen. And then what happens through this bonding? And then you're also, meanwhile, having other things that you're doing with them. Like my my daughter is an artist. I am not an artist, but that's her thing. And I remember when she first was going to school, I was like, how'd it go? How'd it go? Tell me all about it. What, what did, what'd you do? And she's like, mommy, I don't want to talk about it. And I'm like, oh, this is torture. I just want to know. Give me the dirt. And she's like telling me nothing. I'm like, what? Where do you even go all day? And then she's like, mommy, will you color with me? So I'm sitting, I'm coloring with her. I'm just sitting there coloring. And then she's like, guess what happened at school? And I was like, no way. So when I'm doing the things she wants to do with her, that's when she's going to give me the dirt. 
And this is what I see with these kids and their parents around sports. Like I heard one of the moms in Perform Happy, our training program was like, I just got on the trampoline with her and I started jumping. Like I was 10 years old. I probably peed my pants and it was like (laughs) so much fun. And then her kid got off and was like, mom, I want to do some of that mental training. Like it was like so funny how the resistance just went away when she connected with her outside of this whole, like, let me give you some advice. Let's fix your problem. It's like, no, just just do the thing they love to do, be a neutral sounding board, feed them. And that's the like the best thing you can possibly do because then you're going to be able to be there to reflect back to them their greatness when they need to hear it. Well, and how great is that? Because they're, they're helping their kid, but then they're also forming this amazing relationship that the kid is going to have memories of and they're going to have memories of for the rest of their life. So it's like, you're just, you're fixing the whole relationship, not just the sport and the athlete, you yes, know, and that's, yes. way, that's, that is way longer lasting than any sport. You know, it's, there's, it comes a time where we have to be done with our sports. So it's all the things that you're learning in this process that carry with you for the rest of your life and that are far more important, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. And then I got to practice what I preach when my kid is like having a t- <laughs> total freak out disaster about, I don't want to go to second grade. And I'm just like, yeah, buddy, that's really hard. And I just listen yeah. and I just listen. And I'm like, the, the only thing she needs from me right now is to listen and pat her on the back and be here. Mm-hmm. And she's going to work this out. She's going to survive second grade, whether I like give her a whole bunch of evidence and advice right now, or I just listen. Right. <laughs> well, okay. So in addition to your online and one-on-one coaching, um, you also have the Perform Happy podcast. Like, Tell us about all the things that you're doing and how we can learn more and connect with you. Yes. So the Perform Happy podcast, that's where I'm always talking about this sort of thing. So if you like this, come hang, hang out with us over there. And then Perform Happy is also our online membership where we have one-on-one coaching. I have a whole crew of incredible coaches, former D1 athletes, you know, doctors and amazing people who support our families and our kids. And then we do group trainings within that so that you're never more than a couple days without contact with a mental coach if you want. And then we support the parents because it really is, you know, the whole family is so involved in the sport. So um, you can check out that at performhappy.com and just see kind of what we offer our communities of athletes and their parents. Awesome. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on today, dropping some amazing truth bombs and wisdom on us to help us keep moving forward towards our goals. Thank you. It's been so fun. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.